You are listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Veronica Guerin, Part 1. was relatively crime-free up until the Troubles began in about 1970. That's when the paramilitary groups armed themselves in order to meet their political ends in the North and the Republic. Then they went about robbing banks and post offices to fund their violent campaigns. Guns became something that were far more accessible for those who wanted to have them, rather than just for the hunters and farmers of the countryside and petty criminals soon took a leaf from the provost's books and embarked on careers of armed robbery. By the 1980s, though, it quickly became apparent that where the real money was, was drugs. And given the deep recession in progress, the depressed inner city and poor estates in and around Dublin were prime markets for heroin. From this, some entrepreneurial families emerged as the main players in drug dealing and supply in the country. They were the first generation of gangland players, and their kids and grandkids to this day are involved in organized crime and gang warfare, which exploded in the mid-90s and is pervasive to this day, despite nearly everyone's so-called best efforts. While all this was going on, the Garda Chiacana were suffering from a lack of funding, staffing, and all round a lack of morale. The Technical Bureau had been so neglected that by the early 90s it no longer did its work effectively. Detective units were understaffed across the board, and many of those who were tasked with solving crimes were limited to a 9 to 5 roster. In amongst the Cahills, the Hutches, the Cunninghams, was a man named John Gilligan. He had started out his criminal career as part of a gang targeting warehouses and stealing goods through the 70s and 80s. But in the 90s, he moved into drugs. And boy, was he good at dealing drugs. In a few short years, he was heading up a multi-million pound operation, supplying all sorts of illegal substances to the country. He, and the gang that grew up around him, would be at the centre of an horrific murder that would shock the whole of Irish society, and lead to the development of a whole new sector of crime-fighting in the state. John Joseph Gilligan was born March 29, 1952. His parents, Sally and John, already had four children, and would go on to have another six, In total, there were four boys and seven girls. The couple had grown up in Grange Gorman, but were moved out to a new estate in Ballyfermot, on the outskirts of the South City Centre, which at the time was basically the countryside. There, they lived in the relative luxury of a three-bedroomed house with an inside toilet and running water. Much better circumstances than the tenements 
that they had left behind them in Grange Gorman. John Sr. was an alcoholic and was abusive to his wife, who, by all accounts, was a lovely woman who would do anything for her neighbours. Pretty much everyone was in agreement that they didn't know what Sally was doing with him. He was a petty criminal and behaved terribly towards her. But as her kids grew up, they came to their mother's defence, and John Sr. began to lay off a bit. John Jr. left school when he was 12, and began working with his father at B&I Ferries, where it turned out the Gilligans were involved in fraud with a number of other employees. They often neglected to record the proper amount of passengers that the ferry might have on a crossing, and pocketed the fares of those who had gone unrecorded. This was John Jr.'s first foray into crime. At 15, he had his first arrest, for larceny. He had stolen some chickens, for which he was given the benefit of the Probation Act. At 18, he met the woman he would marry. Geraldine Dunn was four years younger than John, and lived off the Kylemore Road in Ballyfermot with her five siblings and her parents. She was horse-mad, and could often be seen riding a pony bareback up and down the streets of the estate. In January 1974, Geraldine discovered that she was pregnant. A short while later, the two were married in the big church in Ballyfermot, and soon their first child was born. They moved to North Strand and then out to Blanchardstown, on the north side of the city, into a newly built council estate. While Gilligan was establishing his family, he also went about establishing his business in order to care for them. And his business was robbery. In October 1975, Gilligan was arrested for a second time for robbery of a shop and served six months in prison. In September 1976, Gilligan was charged with attempting to rob a bookmaker's betting shop, and the following year he received a year's sentence for that offence. He also got 18 months for receiving stolen goods and another three months for larceny. While in prison in 1977, he picked up tricks that would allow him to avoid prison in the future for the most part. He knew now that if he threatened witnesses so that they wouldn't appear in court, cases against him would have to be dropped. He and his father's contacts in the shipping business helped Gilligan out as he expanded his operations. He would pay off truck drivers, hauliers, to allow their goods to be lifted by the gang. John and his associates also liked to target warehouses, cleaning them out and selling the goods door to door. He once robbed a lorry of an entire shipment of frozen bacon. He had stored some of the bacon haul in a shed belonging to an older couple in his estate, and they were eventually arrested and brought in for questioning when the meat was discovered. The wife told the guardie all about John Gilligan and how he'd paid them to use their shed. But the woman later refused to come to court to testify against him, and she withdrew her statement. Gilligan became well-known for targeting factories and warehouses and soon had the nickname of Warehouse or Factory John. He studied the security in place in the industrial estates and was not above paying off security guards. Sometimes, in order to avoid setting off alarms and security systems, they would come up with novel ways of gaining entrance. 
like driving through a back wall or setting fires to compromise the brickwork of a building and then hacking their way in, literally. Once, John and his gang raided a warehouse full of Atari game consoles. His wife, Geraldine, was later caught selling the games and was arrested and charged. In the run-up to her court hearing, she requested and received depositions from those who were to give evidence against her. One by one, each witness was intimidated and withdrew their statements. Though she and John had one up on the guardie and scoffed at their loss, Geraldine herself lost her job because of the incident. John urged her to take her former employers to court for wrongful dismissal, a claim which, of course, she won. After getting a substantial compensation payout, she applied for, and received, disability allowance, caused by the stress and the anxiety of the situation. She never worked again. On the 6th of January, 1982, Dr. James Donovan, who worked in the forensic lab with the Gardee, was driving to work when a bomb went off in his car, causing substantial damage to his legs. He had been due to give evidence in a trial of the general, Martin Cahill, and an associate of his from Ballyfermot, Christy Dutton. In the course of the investigation, it came to light that a man had been seen in a van near to Dr. Donovan's home. It was discovered that this guy was highly respected. He was a security guard from a nearby industrial estate, and had even been appointed a peace officer with the power to sign search warrants. And it turned out he was also an associate of John Gilligan's. In fact, he'd met Gilligan that night. He'd been working as an inside man for John for over a year, but as usual, he was too terrified of the man to make a statement against him, preferring to plead guilty himself and take the full rap for the bomb. Factory John and his crew were highly organised. They had a number of hits in the planning process at any one time, and pulled off at least one job a month. They used walkie-talkies and travelled in a couple of vehicles, keeping an eye out for the guardie and causing diversions when necessary. They were known to be armed and dangerous. On January 2nd, 1986, Gilligan and his crew snuck into a warehouse in Tala, using a van from the cleaning company. They tied the foreman up at gunpoint, and then brought in a 40-foot container and loaded it up with the goods from the warehouse. They were Nilfisk brand vacuum cleaners. It was a huge haul. Eventually, Gardy found the warehouse that Gilligan had stashed this and other loot in, and put it under surveillance. The tractor and container were even in the building. After eight days, Gilligan was spotted entering. The team waited a few minutes for Gilligan to get comfortable. They'd noticed that he'd been scanning the area as he got out of his van, before they burst into the building, screaming at him to make their arrest. Apparently, Gilligan pissed himself he was so shocked. He was arrested under Section 30 of the Offences Against the State Act and charged with aggravated burglary. But that didn't put a stop to Gilligan's gang. While he was sitting in prison, they liberated a truck full of cattle drench in Inchicore to the value of £107,000 
who knew Wormer was so valuable. They locked the driver in the back of his refrigerated truck, and he almost died of hypothermia. When Gilligan was finally released on bail, he was back at it again. He didn't seem to care about being caught, and he was certain he'd never have a court case against him. He was nearly right. Meanwhile, Geraldine helped her man out with his business. She drove him everywhere, as he'd been banned from driving due to his many infractions of the Road Traffic Act. She was also concerned with giving her family an air of respectability. She and her daughter were still very much into horses, and after owning and stabling a few of them, Geraldine bought a rundown farm in Kildare for £7,000 cash and began developing an indoor equestrian centre. Their new neighbours in Enfield had no idea where the Gilligan's money came from, and the family were generally welcomed in the horsey set. Gilligan even started to hit hardware stores in order to help kit out his new home and provide materials for the total refurbishment of the house on site. But all those charges did eventually start to add up, particularly as there was a whole new task force established to deal with armed robbery in the country, the Tango Squad. In May of 1988, Gilligan pled guilty to a robbery at Rose Confectionery and got 18 months. He thought rightly that this plea would ensure a shorter sentence, despite Gardy telling the court that he was the head of one of the largest gangs in the country. By his release in 1989, he was still facing charges, one for a raid on a builder supply yard in Enniscorthy, and another for the vacuum cleaner raid. One of the men who had helped with the job had pled guilty and was still serving his time. Gilligan thought that this guy, Weefer, may have ratted on him to the guardee, and so he had someone slash the guy's face in the prison showers. It was a message not only to him, but to anyone who might think of crossing Gilligan. Gilligan still ended up in court over the vacuums and appeared before a judge and jury charged with receiving stolen goods. He protested his innocence, blaming Weefer for everything and saying that he had only been taking a lift and helping a friend out. But his legal team then began to argue a point of law. They cited English legal precedent, which stated that you could not receive that which you had stolen. Gilligan had stolen the cleaners and had therefore not, quote-unquote, received them from anyone. And that's all he had been charged with. This Hail Mary move paid off, and John walked free. The DPP revised their policy to ensure that suspects were charged with everything on their sheets going forward. When Gilligan was to stand trial for the Enniscorthy raid, the DPP directed that they wanted the trial held in the Special Criminal Court, rather than the Circuit Court. The special was set up in response to the Troubles in Northern Ireland to deal with paramilitary criminals. There's no jury, in order to avoid intimidation, and there are other security measures in place to protect witnesses. Gilligan's lawyers had sought to have the case struck out in the district court when a date was initially sought, but the judge denied this, having read the book of evidence. When a date for the circuit court was requested, the prosecution barrister produced the order that the special was to be used. Gilligan went white. It was not what he was expecting. Either way, when he appeared before the special, it turned out that the star witness, 
the man who owned the yard that Gilligan had stashed the stolen building supplies in, had changed his story. He now said that Gilligan had stored stuff with him before the raid in Enniscorthy had happened. Further, the guy who would visit him was a Mr. Gilligan, but it wasn't the same guy who was in the dock. In the end, Gilligan was cleared of the burglary charge, but was given a sentence of four years for a charge of receiving stolen goods. He was livid as he left court for the maximum security Port Leash prison, and by the time he got out in 1993, he swore he would never spend time behind bars again. When he was out, Gilligan would very quickly go about setting up his drug empire, but as the literal force behind the operation, he was in need of partners with other specialities, and those characters, too, would be re-emerging into freedom in the early 90s. One of them was the more professional face of the operation, the one who would know how to make deals and launder newfound finances. His name was John Trainer. John Trainer was born on the 2nd of February 1948 and was one of eight kids. His family had no ties with crime and his father was an electrician. The family moved to a council estate in Crumlin in the late 50s and were a bit better off than their neighbours given their father's profession. Trainer attended Sing Street School for primary education where he was described as a bright student. He never went on to secondary school though and instead began dabbling in crime. He was first arrested at 13 in 1961 for housebreaking, and, as most first-timers, got probation. By the time he was 18, he had served nearly two years in custody for charges ranging from housebreaking to robbery to larceny. In between all that, he got a job as a seaman in B&I Shipping, where he met Gilligan. His family, meanwhile, moved to County Kildare, where they owned a number of pubs and also a greyhound track. 1976 saw Trainer's marriage to Michelle Sexton, with whom he would have four daughters. But the next year, Trainer was convicted under the Firearms Act, as well as for assault, burglary and larceny, and assault causing harm, for an incident where he pulled a gun in a pub. He had gotten into an argument with a police officer there and began swinging the thing around. He worked at his dad's greyhound track and drove trucks for a living, but that didn't cover the cost of his heavy drinking, big spending and womanizing lifestyle, and so he turned to crime to supplement that. He was particularly fond of fraud. He set up a fake insurance company once and passed bad checks and bank drafts. He also wasn't above dealing with the paramilitaries. He would help both the Irish National Liberation Army, the INLA, and the Provisional IRA, the Provos, move bank drafts from armed robberies. He would alter them and then pay people to cash them in for him. In a particularly ingenious move, he also took to stealing post bags from the Collector General's office in Dublin Castle. That was where businesses would send their taxes. He'd take the checks alter them, changing the name that the draft was payable to, and then cash them in. He knew Martin Cahill, 
the general from when he was a child, and the two of them, along with Gilligan and another gangster known as the Penguin, pulled off huge robberies like the theft of a hundred thousand pounds worth of cigarettes from a warehouse in Kildare. In May of 1981, Trainer and Cahill bought a pub together in North Wall, which soon became well known for drug dealers and brawls. The money for the purchase came from Cahill's robberies, and Trainer acted as a frontman for the operation. Most of what the bar sold was stolen stock. The two also owned and ran a dry cleaners on Anger Street, and upstairs in the premises, they ran a massage parlour. Now, I'm not sure if my American listeners know this particular term, but here, a massage parlour is a euphemism for, well, a brothel, basically. Caho was also a regular client of his upstairs business. In July of 1983, the two pulled off a huge raid on a warehouse of jewellers, O'Connor's. They managed to get into the strong room and made off with bars of gold, uncut diamonds, and precious stones and gold rings to the value of one and a half million pounds, which at the time was the largest robbery in the history of the state. Of course, they only got a fraction of that on the black market, but they were able to sell it off to a fence in London. When the bags of gold and jewels were on their way over to London, one went missing. This resulted in a now infamous story about the general, where he literally nailed the man he suspected of the theft of the bag to the floor of a derelict house. When the guy still wouldn't say he had screwed them over, he was deemed innocent of the supposed crime against the gangster. But everyone knew now that the general would literally crucify you if he even thought you screwed him. The heist also ran them afoul of the provost who wanted a cut from the hall of O'Connor's. The general told them to fuck off and left the cafe where they had met with trainer in tow. This caused tension between the paramilitaries and their gangland associates, which led to the abduction of one of Cahill's close friends by the provisional IRA, and an attempted abduction of another of his associates. There was a shootout in the street between the guardie and the provisional IRA, who threatened to kill Cahill. Trainer decided to take matters into his own hands and met with the provost to assure them that he would try and get Cahill to hand over some of the profit from the O'Connor raid. In May of 1984, the pub that the two owned mysteriously caught fire. It had become a bit of a burden to them. The only patrons were utterly dodgy, and they were sick of dealing with them. There was insurance on the premises, which they could cash in, and still sell the place if anything was to happen to it. So one night in May, the furniture was all piled into the middle of the pub floor, and 40 gallons of petrol was poured on top and set alight. The compensation case was, of course, brought to the High Court, but eventually, in October of 1988, the two were awarded £35,000 in damages for the property, although the judge acknowledged that this was a very shady situation indeed. Another thing that Trainer was particularly skilled at was posing as a Garda, a high-up officer no less. He'd often ring a station that was holding one of Cahill's men and demand that he be released as part of an ongoing investigation, or he'd tell the duty officers that there was criminal activity going on in order to distract them away from where Cahill's gang was going to hit. Unbelievably, he was often successful. 
On May 21st, 1986, the gang carried out a spectacularly bold heist of a collection of paintings known as the Bait Collection from Rossborough House, a stately home in County Wicklow. They had visited the house a number of times, taking note of the security system, and then that night walked away with the collection of Dutch masters considered one of the finest private collections of artwork in the world. It's perhaps the general's best-known crime. The aftermath of the bait heist got Trainer into a bit of trouble, though. One of his premises was searched in the aftermath. The Gardaí found no paintings, but they did find a large consignment of stolen cigarettes, the bread and butter of the Irish criminal. There were also a number of bad checks that were traced back to him through runners around this time, and then the wife of the man with whom the O'Connor Hall had been stashed came forward with information. She had a falling out with her husband, and was ready to tell the Gardaí all. When questioned, her husband cracked and told the Gardaí everything, including that he had been threatened by Trainer. Cahill's trust in Trainer started to waver. It was becoming apparent that leaving the accounting up to the more financially savvy Trainer may have been a mistake, and that Trainer may have been hiding part of the proceeds of their crime from the general. In March 1987, Cahill had had enough, and he stormed into the dry cleaners with a gun looking for his business partner. Cahill pulled the place apart and smashed up the machines, but he was too late. Trainer had already left and gone to England, where he would stay for the next five years. While there he made new friends, but returned to his old strokes of fraudulent checks and drafts. But as Trainer's sights grew bigger, so did the potential for failure. He used fake treasury bonds to try and get a mortgage of a couple of million pounds for a fake development project of a Caribbean hotel. He was caught while in the process of drawing down the second instalment of the mortgage and was given seven years in jail in England. The stint away did give him time to try and sort out his affairs in Ireland, and so, while inside, Trainer tried to sort out the sale of the pub in North Wall and convince Cahill that he was not, in fact, trying to screw him over. When the sale of the pub went through and Cahill got his half of the proceeds, he decided to forgive his old fixer. While Trainer was away in England, his wife and family made an unlikely friend in their neighbour, a member of the Gardee. He took care of the family and helped them collect flight tokens so that Michelle and one of the kids could go and visit their dad. In return for this kindness, Trainer told his wife to let the neighbour know that he would be willing to talk to him, so it was arranged that this Garda and his superior would go and visit Trainer in England. Trainer was anxious to get some assurances that if and when he returned home, he would not end up back in prison, and he was told that if he could get his hands on some files stolen from the DPP's offices by the general, then something might be able to be done about the receiving charges that he still faced. This incident had been another one of the general's most audacious strokes when he broke into government offices and stole prosecution files. A particular interest to the Gardaí were the files relating to the still-as-of-yet-unsolved case of Father Niall Malloy. It's thought that the file may have contained information that would embarrass either the Gardaí or the prosecution services. In November 1992, 
Trainer was let out on temporary release from the English prison, but he never returned. Instead, he went home to Dublin. He told Cahill about his conversation with the guardie while he'd been inside in the UK. A few weeks later, once Trainer was sure he couldn't be extradited back to the UK, he and Cahill delivered the file back to the guardie in a large Dunstore's bag in the dead of night. Later that year, the receiving charges against John were dropped due to the delay in the case being brought forward. Trainer quickly took up with John Gilligan, and the two would set up and run the first drug empire in the country. The nascent empire was enveloping all the old players, and one in particular was a good guy to have around to clean up messes. His name was Dutchie Holland. Patrick Eugene Holland, known as Dutchie, was born on the 12th of March 1939. His family lived in Chapel Lizard, on the west side of Dublin, which at the time was still the countryside, but is today, yet again, part of Dublin's urban sprawl. His family was middle class, and he had a somewhat idyllic background. He was polite and soft-spoken, and very religious. He didn't drink or smoke, and hardly ever used foul language. He left Ireland in his late teens and spent a number of years in America as a member of the U.S. Marine Corps. He had no criminal history until he was 26 in 1965, when he was found in possession of stolen fur coats. He insisted that not only was this incident a setup, and that he had not been involved in stealing the coats, nor had he had known that they were stolen, but it was at this point he developed a hatred for the authorities, and his life took a turn towards crime. By the mid-1970s, he'd become a bank robber, and would hit his targets on his own with no backup, just a stolen Mini Cooper and armed with a handgun. After he was caught and charged with two robberies, he decided to team up with Michael and John Cunningham from Ballyfermot, and they robbed the Charlton Cinema together but they were quickly caught and charged with this robbery, too. At this, Dutchie decided he would be better off elsewhere, and he and his wife Angela fled to the U.S. In 1981, when the couple returned to Ireland for a wedding, Dutchie went on another robbing spree. He carried on in this way for a couple of weeks, and planned to head back to the States when he was done. After robbing P&T, the head office of the post office in Hawkins Street, taking all their wage packets... He, his wife, and two family members headed to the port to take a ferry to France, where they then planned on getting a flight onto Boston. But the guardie had been tipped off and arrested all four of them at Rosselaire. The place he'd been staying in Sandymount was searched, and the guardie found a cache of weapons. He was kept in custody while he awaited trial for charges relating to three armed robberies. In the end, Dutchie was given seven years for those crimes, and served five, getting out again in 1986. Holland then started up a small printing business in the city centre, but he of course subsidised this with armed robberies. He was in touch with other gangs who were operating in Dublin, as well as the IRA. It was his association with IRA members that brought the attention of the Guardi back to him, and his house was eventually raided by the Serious Crime Squad. They found explosives, as well as guns, maps, disguises, and so on. Dutchie gave no trouble when he was arrested, saying he took 
full responsibility for whatever was in the house and putting the provisional IRA members in the clear. When he was being questioned about what he had been up to while in the States, the Gardaí were shocked when he told them that he had worked as a contract killer for the Mafia while in Boston and Chicago, though there was never any proof for this. In front of the special criminal court, he was given 10 years. The Court of Criminal Appeal reduced these sentences, but still, Holland would not be released from prison until 1994, at 51 years of age. The emerging crew of old hands and expert criminals was joined, of course, by a younger set, who were happy to associate with the older guys whose reputations preceded them. Often they had met while in jail and had learned the tricks of the trade from them. These younger members would play a vital role in rolling out the full-scale import-export business that was being developed by Gilligan and Trainer. Brian Meehan was one of these younger guys who would go on to play a vital role in Gilligan's gang. He was born in Crumlin on the 7th of April 1964 and was raised in the notorious Fatima Mansions. Don't let the name deceive you, this was a large social housing apartment block near the city centre. Think the Irish version of the projects, which became one of the worst areas to be scourged by the heroin epidemic. It was not anything like what the word mansion conjures up in reality. But growing up, Brian managed to avoid the heroin scourge. Instead, he became a prolific car thief and joyrider. He was known for boosting expensive and high-performance cars, driving around like a crazy person and getting into car chases with the Gardee. He had even figured out how to ram Garda cars just right so that it would disable their car while he'd still be able to drive off in his. This got him attention from the established criminals, and he soon began taking part in robberies, first by supplying getaway cars and then by taking a more active role. He was known to be violent and reckless, and had pulled guns on the Gardee, even shooting at an unarmed officer in a chase once. After getting caught for one armed robbery on an AIB branch in Grafton Street, Meehan realised that he could be facing a much longer stretch in prison than he'd gotten thus far for stealing cars. He decided to help the Gardee recover some firearms. In return, he was let out on bail, but he was soon back in custody for a robbery on a pharmaceutical company where one million pounds worth of drugs were stolen. One day during his next stint, though, he got the clever idea to pretend to be another prisoner who was due for release that day, and he simply walked out of Mount Joy. No one noticed, at least at first. He lived in Ballybuck with his girlfriend until he was quote-unquote found by the Gardee. In reality, he had been under close watch and even passed on information to the police. When he was finally brought before the court for his part in the Grafton Street robbery, the jury ended up being discharged. It emerged that a few of the jurors had been followed home by associates of Meehan's and had been threatened and intimidated. Wonder where he picked that trick up from, him. Huh? He was returned to Mount Joy to await his retrial, but in the meantime, word got out that he had been supplying the Gardee with information to try and keep him on the outside. People were still scared of the violent and unpredictable man, but his reputation with other criminals did suffer. And so, to 
to remedy this, he decided to take part in a protest with other prisoners about the conditions inside Mount Joy, which, in fairness, are pretty bad. There was a riot which caused millions of pounds worth of damage, and he and a group of other inmates ended up on the roof of the jail, where they stayed for days until they were coaxed back inside. Due to his poor behaviour, Meehan was moved to Portleash Prison, where he took up residency on E1 Wing, with the men considered to be the most hardened of criminals. While there, he would be accepted by the established criminals, like John Gilligan and Dutchy Holland. Portleash Prison became like a social club for those who would be the key players in Ireland's gangland crime scene in the 1990s, It was the place that they met and forged friendships and business relationships in the late 80s and early 90s. E1 Wing had once been the domain of paramilitary subversives, but as organised crime ramped up, it was clear that more space in a secure environment was required, and Port Leash was certainly the most secure. At the time, it was the most secure prison in Europe due to terrorist activities in the north. By 1993 or so, Gilligan and Cahill and their junior cronies had served their time and were making their way back to their homes in Dublin with ambitions to make tons of money and, nearly as important, to stay out of prison. As the gangsters contemplated their lives going forward and how they were going to go about setting themselves up financially, it became clear that the importation of drugs was the way to go. Trainer had made good contacts with international suppliers while he was in jail in England. They just needed to get some money together to front the initial investment into their stock. So Cahill, Gilligan, Trainer, Meehan, and other people well known to the Gardee got together to plan an audacious crime. They were going to hit the cash holding centre of the National Irish Bank, which held millions in cash at any given point in time. An armed robbery would not work in these circumstances, given the security in place, and so they had to get more creative. They decided that they would abduct the CEO and his family and then force him, under threat to his wife and children, to enter the building and raid the safe. Cahill and six of his men struck the house in Blackrock at 1.25am on the morning of the 1st of November 1993, when John Lacey and his wife returned to their home after an event. The gang had been watching them for weeks. They grabbed the couple and their kids and moved them to a disused stable on Black Horse Avenue in the city centre. Meehan particularly enjoyed his role of waving a gun around and generally instilling fear in the family. They told the CEO that his son had been shot and had another gangster, Michael Jojo Kavanaugh, play the role of another bank official who had suffered the same fate as Lacey. Jojo would go with Lacey to the National Irish Bank building and make sure that the money was got. In the end, Lacey managed to trick Kavanagh into thinking that there was far less cash in the vault than there was in reality, and so the gang only made off with £233,000 rather than the near £7 million that the bank actually had stashed there. Meanwhile, Trainer, Cahill and Gilligan were swanning around the city centre, making sure to be seen. One of them walked right down O'Connell Street. Another made sure to be seen placing a bet at a city centre bookmaker's. 
there was no way that they could be linked to the heist. The only person who ended up back in jail was Kavanaugh, who was readily identifiable. He was sent away for 12 years in 1997. But it was clear from this point that big heists were a thing of the past. They were simply too difficult to pull off now that the Gardaí had caught up with the gangs of armed robbers. There was too much risk for too little payoff. The time for armed robbery had passed. And now was the time to move on to drugs. Martin Cahill, the general, was against the idea of getting involved in dealing drugs, particularly heroin. Heroin pushers were reviled by the working-class communities that the gangs relied on to sell off stock to. But the general was more than happy to front money to Trainer and Gilligan to get started up, given that there would be a huge return on his investment. Trainer functioned as the business front, and did the negotiations with the big supplier out of Amsterdam. Soon shipments of hash were making their way into the country. They shipped the drugs, concealed as computer parts or machine parts or old containers, in legitimate haulier companies' loads, and then had the drugs delivered to them once they made it past customs in Dublin and Cork. They watched their shipments closely to make sure that the guardie weren't on their tracks when the drugs made it past the port. As the drug route became established, so did the routine for the couriers and suppliers around the city. One man who became highly involved was Charles Bowden. He had no criminal record and had in fact served six years in the army. He'd only left after he'd assaulted new recruits in a fit of drunken peak one night. He helped out storing drugs, hash and e-tabs for a while and soon became a supplier to many of the smaller dealers in the chains establishing themselves in Dublin. He was an ideal person to be involved, a big, bulky guy who was physically fit and able to handle himself in a fight, and most importantly, he had no criminal record whatsoever. He was unknown to the Gardaí. In just a couple of months, he became something of a line manager for the gang. The success of the gang did not go unnoticed by their first investor, Cahill. He began asking Gilligan and Trainer about the return on his investment. Half a million pounds should do it, he said. The other two were not ready to pay the man back, and certainly not that huge sum. But intervening events got Cahill off their backs. On May 21st, 1994, members of the Ulster Volunteer Force, the UVF, a loyalist paramilitary group, made their way to a meeting being held by the Provisional IRA in a pub in Dublin city centre. They shot the man who was guarding the door, but it was barricaded shut. So they dropped a bag containing an 18-pound bomb meant for the 300-strong meeting, and then they fled. The bomb miraculously didn't go off. If it had, it would have been big enough to kill all the attendees and level the old building that the meeting was being held in. The provisional IRA were obviously enraged that such a thing had happened in Dublin and began grasping around to place blame. They wanted to know if any of their friendly neighbourhood gang crews had been involved in the attempted massacre. They wanted to interview them to assess who had been involved. When it was his turn, Martin Cahill told them to fuck off. 
the provosts, were less than pleased. Martin Cahill, the general, was shot five times in the chest while he was sitting in his car on the 18th of August 1994 at Oxford Road and Charleston Road in the Southside village of Ranala. Initially, his assassination was claimed by the INLA, who had links to Gilligan and Trainer, but shortly thereafter, the provisional IRA claimed responsibility and gave details of the shooting about the motorbike and gun used, proving that they had in fact done the deed. After that, they called on the gang bosses yet again, asking their questions and demanding protection money from them. A warning went out that anyone who had any link or did any business with the UVF would end up in the same way as the general. A week after the general's murder, Gilligan and Trainer were carrying on their drug business as normal. On the 24th of August, 1994, Meehan and another member of the crew, Peter Mitchell, who would go on to be involved in Gilligan's distribution network, drove up Dorset Street in the city centre and were spotted by Gardee. They were stopped and the car was searched. In it was a bag of cash, about £46,000. The two men were arrested under the Misuse of Drugs Act. They were searched and questioned at Fitzgibbon Street Garda Station, and all Meehan would say was that he was holding on to the money for a friend. He would not say who. When Gilligan found out what had happened, he turned up at the Garda station with copies of betting receipts and checks to prove that the money was his. He and Meehan both made signed statements to the guardie, the only time either would ever be so cooperative with them. All this in order to retrieve the cash they needed to keep their business going. Gilligan told the guardie, quote, I'm a gambler and a successful one but the guardie would not release the funds, and so Gilligan applied to the courts to try and have it ordered back to him. In December, after a hearing at the district court, Gilligan returned to the Garda station and collected his money. That cash was needed in order to be brought to Holland, changed at the banks, and handed over to a supplier and his cronies to keep the shipments of hash coming into the country. As things developed, and everyone settled into their new roles, Gilligan had the importation moved to Cork, where he had paid off a guy working at a company there, John Dunn. The drugs would be collected from there by Meehan and brought up to Dublin, where it would then be distributed from a secure lockup in an industrial estate. Gilligan also had people who brought the hard cash over to Amsterdam for him, as initially he'd made frequent flights over himself but that soon became tiresome. By 1996, the gang was in full swing, importing millions of punts worth of hash, as well as ecstasy and guns, which they'd either keep for enforcing or sell on to the INLA. The big players laundered their money in various ways. Trainer owned a number of used car dealerships, Gilligan kept up the facade that he was an accomplished gambler and siphoned the money in and then out of legitimate bookmakers at the racetracks. Their operation was huge, and they brought hundreds of kilos of hash into the country every couple of weeks. Meanwhile, Europol and the Irish police were starting to notice that the drugs operation had ramped up. Though, at this stage, neither had any idea how much money was being made by the gang. 
the Gardaí began Operation Pineapple to look into Gilligan and his crew and to keep tabs on those running drugs through the city. It was a widespread task force, gathering documents, surveilling no members of the gang, watching Gilligan's movements and keeping track of mobile phone usage. But Gilligan and his underlings felt utterly untouchable. They'd managed to get this far and make this much money, and they thought no one could come near them. The power and money, says crime journalist Paul Williams, went to Gilligan's head. He became more and more volatile and violent, drunk on his own reputation, and his cronies followed suit. But his world, however, was about to collide with another person who seemed to feel invincible at times. But this person was not a member of the criminal underworld, nor was she a member of the Gardee out to take them down and lock them back up. She was a tenacious journalist, a mother and wife and sister who loved politics and football and driving fast cars and did not seem to be afraid of anything, not even John Gilligan. Veronica Guerin was born on the 5th of July, 1958, though it's always reported as a year later. Apparently, the confusion first arose when she and her brother fudged their birth years to keep involvement in the youth branch of the Fianna Fáil party. Her family lived in Artane, and she had four siblings. Her dad owned an accountancy firm, so though they lived in a working-class area, they were definitely becoming part of the middle class and were reasonably comfortable. She was a bit of a tomboy, and she played sports. She had a dominant personality, but was also charming and kind. She was charismatic and bold and likable, and she knew how to work a room. She was bright, but never really applied herself in school. She was always more interested in sport. She was a lifelong Man U fanatic, though her other love was politics. In her school days, she became friends with the sons of former Taoiseach, Charles Hahi, and had visited them in the Hahi's mansion in Kinsili, a short distance from their home on the north side. It was through the Hahis that she met Graham Turley, who was friends with them through the Sea Scouts in Malahide. Veronica would go on to marry him. It's been reported that she went to Trinity, where she studied accountancy, though it's not clear what, if any, qualifications arose from this. Either way, her father employed her in his firm. When he passed away suddenly in 1981, as none of the children were accountants, the firm was sold, and those of the kids who had been working for their father had to find other jobs. Veronica decided to concentrate on politics. She had good connections through the Hahi family, after all. In 1982, she was appointed to the governing body of the National Institute of Higher Education. It was an unusual appointment. She was only 24 and had no professional or academic qualifications. But Veronica was not daunted by this and applied herself to the position. She attended nearly all of the meetings and was happy to voice her opinions. In 1983, she started to work for Fianna Fáil itself as an assistant to the New Ireland Forum. It was a nationalist cross-party forum set up so that political groups north and south of the border could collaborate together on ideas to ease the tensions of the Troubles. She was the liaison between the various parties, and she took to this position. While there, her interest in journalism began to grow, 
particularly through a few well-placed friendships with writers for the Sunday Tribune, specifically Patty Prenderville. There were a number of leaks from the New Ireland Forum to the Tribune, and it's suspected that Veronica was the source for them, not a cardinal sin in politics, but definitely showing she wasn't afraid to take matters into her own hands. She was even once caught in Charlie Hawley's office in Leinster House in the early morning hours, going through his files. All the offices were locked up at night after that incident. When the New Ireland Forum came to an end, Veronica's work with the party was over, but she still came to Leinster House often. That continued until it was made clear to her that she was no longer an employee and could not come and go at will. So she set up her own PR firm in 1984, and in 1987 Veronica enrolled in Dublin Institute of Technology for a one-year graduate program in marketing management, though of course she wasn't a graduate of anything. She excelled in the course, however, and was very popular. She didn't get much work in PR, though. One of her biggest clients was a British airline who was looking to move into Dublin Airport. Veronica negotiated on their behalf with Air Rienta, the Irish Aviation Authority. Veronica had told her clients that Air Rienta were about to grant permission and showed them a letter signed by their chief executive. But it turned out that the letter was a forgery. Veronica had faked the letter and the signature. The incident would come to light later and cause problems for Veronica in her new chosen career, journalism. She would wind up her less-than-successful PR firm in order to pursue this. She became a journalist at 32 in 1990. She started off in the Sunday Business Post and used her knowledge of accountancy to track frauds in businesses. It may be out of this that her interest in crime grew. She started off as freelance and had to be shown how to write for papers, but she was good at getting stories. Her first major story was on the Aer Lingus holiday scandal, involving a subsidiary of Aer Lingus that ran charter tours to the Mediterranean during the summer holidays. They filed profits every year, and each year its license got renewed by the Department of Aviation. But, in fact, it was hemorrhaging money in order to undercut its competitors. So we can see that even though she was just starting out, she had no intention of chasing the small stories more usual for rookie reporters. She was driven, took the initiative, and would do nearly anything to get the story. But she didn't like telling people where her information came from. She seemed to like that kind of air of mystery. For her next big story, she went after Arienta. In the early 90s, the company was looking to expand their duty-free operations, and Veronica was investigating if they had made less than kosher payments in other countries to secure these kind of contracts. Veronica had somehow managed to get minutes of a board meeting discussing the potential for embarrassment if these payments became known, proof that the company was acting shady to get the deal done. When Arienta were contacted for comment, they took out an injunction against the Sunday Business Post. Arienta accused Veronica of having a vendetta against them for what had happened when she was working in PR and for exposing her forged letter. They prepared an affidavit outlining this to be read into court, 
Veronica denied the accusations and was prepared to speak against them in court, but the Sunday Business Post immediately entered into talks with Arienta, and the two parties agreed not to publish the story and not pursue the case as a solution. Veronica stayed on with the paper, but her reputation with her bosses was somewhat damaged by the whole thing. They worried that Veronica was simply not concerned with how she managed to get the information she used in her stories. There was very little she wouldn't do in pursuit of a story she wanted to write. She once even approached a politician's child at their school to try and figure out who the kid's dad had had over to their house recently in aid of a story. But soon after the Ariente incident, she was approached by the Sunday Telegraph to come on as a crime correspondent, and Veronica jumped at the chance. Despite the trouble caused over the injunction, her employers were sad to see her go, But this was the opportunity that Veronica needed at that time. It was the spring of 1993. At the Telegraph, she started out investigating financial scandals. She would seek out the people involved in her stories, sit outside their houses, and wait for them for hours until they appeared. She was tenacious and never gave up, and excelled at doorstepping. She was far from shy. While at the Tribune, she landed a number of high-profile articles. The first was that she managed to track down Bishop Eamon Casey after he fled the country when the Irish Times revealed that he had a 16-year-old son. Veronica travelled to South America on her own dime and managed to land an interview with him. But at some point, her relationship with her editor there, Vincent Brown, became strained and she left going to work for the Sunday Independent in January of 1994. She worked alone. Not many of her colleagues at the Sunday Independent knew her. She didn't even have a desk at their offices in Middle Abbey Street. She worked out of her car, and kept in touch with her editors and her family by the bulky mobile phone she carried with her. She went all over the city and met with people involved in Dublin's underbelly, its drug trade. When she joined the Independent, she nearly immediately began focusing on gangland crime and decided to go about her investigations the way she had covered political and business cases, by getting the story from the players themselves. Rather than rely on guardy sources and statements like most other crime reporters, she tracked down the dealers and the gang members themselves and fostered relationships with them to get the information that she wanted. In return for the information that they gave her, she would print their views on the comings and goings and the changing landscape of Ireland's gangland. In August of 1994, she had been pursuing organised crime for the Independent some months when Martin Cahill, the general, was shot and killed after a spate of shootings between two rival gangs. Veronica had nearly immediately gotten in touch with him back in January when she had started, though he never admitted to her to being the so-called general. She delivered letters to him in both of his Dublin homes daily for six weeks until he finally agreed to speak with her. When the infamous mob boss was killed, he was someone personally known to her, a key player in the puzzle she was trying to piece together and then tear back apart. 
She seemed to have a tactic that she used with the dealers, where she would shout abuse at them, belittle them, and try to humiliate them. She called them names and so on, until they finally agreed to speak with her. Then, after that, she carefully cultivated these relationships, knowing that the conversations happened only on their terms, and that they could shut down her information sources if she put a foot wrong. It was clever and manipulative and ballsy, and bloody dangerous to goad known killers like this. After Cahill's death, she was free to say things that liable law prevented her from writing while he was still alive. But that's not to say that her writing about him was no longer dangerous. In her article on him, she also cited a source who had given her some gossipy information, personal stuff about Cahill that was not known to the public or people in general. The first was that he had two relationships, one with his wife, with whom he had a number of children, and the other with her sister, with whom he also had kids. The women lived in two houses, and Cahill divided his time between the two. She also reported that Cahill also had a penchant for visiting various massage parlours to have women strip for him. That was all, a dance and a strip. He also liked watching porn, apparently. The startling thing about this story was that, one, it meant that Veronica was in contact with other members of Cahill's gang who were willing to give embarrassing and salacious details about his life to a journalist, and that, two, this gossip affected people who were still very much alive. It was definitely a dangerous thing to do. The next week, she wrote another article, saying that the responsibility for the death of the general laid with the IRA, this was hardly a surprise to most people. It was known that the general had pissed the IRA off when he had worked with the loyalists for the bait painting heist, but what Veronica went on to say was noteworthy. She said that the provost had worked through another Dublin gang to carry out the shooting. The public would have been unaware how explosive this tidbit of information was, but the Gardaí and other criminal elements would have known exactly who Veronica was referring to. They knew Veronica was blaming a gangster known as the monk, Jerry Hutch, for Martin Cahill's death. Three weeks later, Veronica's next article stated that the Gardaí felt her life was at threat from the North Inner City gang she had implicated in Cahill's death and that her house was under guard observation. Veronica was now involved, a player in the story herself. This was in keeping with the tone of the Sunday Independent newspaper at the time. Most of the articles had a personal bent to them, but of course Veronica was not reviewing restaurants or giving economic predictions. She was dealing with serious crime, committed by very dangerous men. Tony Gregory, a member of Parliament, a TD from the North Inner City, thought that there was something off about these personal articles and the articles indicating that a gang local to his constituency had been involved. He had also been quite sure that the killing had been carried out by the provost. He thought that Veronica also seemed to have other details wrong, the gun that was used, the description of the man on the motorbike, who wasn't wearing a mask when he shot the general. Gregory was concerned. The articles were stirring up rancor between criminal gangs, and seemed to be pitting one against another. And they were also filled with inconsist and he also thought that they were filled with inconsistencies. 
so Tony Gregory rang the Guardi, who told him that, as far as they were concerned, there was no connection to the monk, and that Veronica was not to be trusted. Gregory wrote a letter to the editor of the Sunday Independent, which he hoped to have published to address his concerns with the reporting in the paper. It read, quote, Dear Editor, Veronica Guerin's article on the shooting of Martin Cahill, 11th September 1994, concludes that, quote, The Gardaí are fearful that the current climate will result in more murders in the city, end quote. The Gardaí's concerns are understandable, most particularly following Ms. Guerin's two exclusive articles in which she claims a North Inner City criminal gang killed Cahill. From details in her stories, the gang is readily identifiable. Could anything be more calculated to contribute to that climate of fear? In the emotionally charged aftermath of the general's killing, to publish such allegations without any evidence must be irresponsible. All the more so, given that her exclusive revelations are by all accounts without foundation and most likely simply untrue. Had her story resulted from thorough investigative journalism, which had uncovered facts useful to the Gardaí investigation, then it might have some justification. But to target and set up identifiable individuals for Cahill's murder without a shred of evidence is not what one might expect of a major national newspaper. Ms. Guerin avoids the fact that all of the leading North Inner City criminal groups are known to the Gardaí, their photos are on file, and as we know, there are a number of eyewitnesses who could identify Cahill's killer. Did Ms. Guerin, who appears to have extensive Gardaí contacts, or her editor, bother to check her provocative story with any of the appropriate Gardaí at or above the rank of superintendent? I doubt it. The best that can be said about Ms. Guerin's articles is that they were recklessly written and published without any regard for the possible consequence. It only takes one gunman to believe that there is no smoke without fire to start a gang war. The question has to be asked, what motivated those who fed the story to her? End quote. But the editor of the Sunday Independent refused to publish the letter. If Tony Gregory wanted some sensible balance injected into the story, then he was out of luck, it would seem. Gregory felt strongly that the articles Veronica wrote were in and of themselves creating the climate she warned of, and that she seemed to be trying to stir up violence between the various gangs in the city. After this point, though, Veronica moved away from the crimeland scene, sort of, and concentrated on the Galan murder-for-hire case. More on that another time. But the criminal she insisted on doorstepping had not forgotten about her. On the 7th of October 1994, Veronica and Graham were putting their then four-year-old son to bed when shots were fired into the living room of their house through the front window. Thankfully, no one was hurt. The Independent, of course, carried the story written by Veronica's colleague, Don Lavery. Bizarrely, the article carried a picture of Veronica's house next to it. Neither she nor her employers seemed to be concerned with drawing more attention to her or her house. It was a dramatic moment, a warning that was quickly forgotten by Guerin. She smoothed things over with her worried family and went back to her doorstepping ways. Over the next few months, she flitted between run-of-the-mill domestic murder cases and clerical child abuse cases. But eventually, in January of 1995, she came out with an article that focused on the associate of the generals that she had relied on before for her information. She gave him the moniker of The Coach, 
but we know him better as John Trainer. He was well known to the Gardaí, and he called himself a quote-unquote businessman. In the article, Veronica described him as a master criminal in flattering tones. But this came at a cost. It was now quite clear who this associate of the general was who had been talking to Guerin. Later, her next article concentrated again on the criminal known as the monk, who she described as a very good armed robber. She named him and his gang as being responsible for a number of hits on the Brinks Allied firm in Dublin. It's thought that he agreed to meet with her and give an interview because he was anxious to distance himself from the killing of Martin Cahill. The day after that article was published, at a quarter to seven in the evening, a man wearing a motorcycle helmet called to the door of Veronica's home. When she answered, he shot her in the thigh. The bullet was removed in hospital. It was not a serious injury, and the spotlight was once again back on Veronica herself. The Independent published a picture of her in her hospital bed. The next week, she and her family were on the front page, telling the story of her ordeal. She was portrayed once again as a tenacious, dogged pursuer of the truth who would not be cowed into picking up other stories or focusing herself elsewhere. She was adamant that she would continue her work. The paper named the culprit as the monk, but he definitely was not the one responsible. The interview that had appeared the day before the shooting merely functioned as a good cover for the real perpetrator, widely suspected as Veronica's source, John Trainer. Later, he would say that he allowed rumours of his responsibility to circulate, but denied that he was in fact the one who arranged the attack. When the ballistics were run on the bullet that had lodged in Veronica's leg, it was discovered that not only was the bullet damaged, but it had been recycled. It had been used before. Furthermore, the charge in it had been extremely low and was unlikely to have caused any serious damage. It made it seem that whoever had carried out the attack had certainly not meant to kill the reporter. Ridiculous rumours also flew around that Veronica had in fact shot herself in order to elevate her reputation as a hard-ass crime reporter. The day she was released from hospital, she prepared a number of letters and had her husband drive her around the city to deliver them and to knock on doors. She, while on crutches still after the shooting, was knocking on the doors of those she suspected of perhaps being involved in the shooting itself. She was put under guard of protection, but within a few weeks of her discharge, she asked for this to be called off. The guardie did not want to, and initially refused, but after much badgering, agreed to lift the observation. Veronica said she simply could not do her work that way. In the following few months, she wrote more about the Ghislaine case, discussed Garda corruption and a controversy about Bishop Brendan Comiskey from the Diocese of Ferns, who was a serial child abuser, but by April she was back to gangland crime. She drove all over the Midlands in pursuit of people involved in a Brinks robbery. In May, she wrote about alleged extortions by a gang who had held families hostage in order to get money from the fathers. It again would have been obvious to anyone running in those circles who the article was referring to. In February 1996, the Sunday World's crime correspondent Paul Williams published a front-page spread with a huge picture of the monk on the front, his face only slightly disguised by a little black bar running across his eyes. The byline was, quote, 
public enemy number one. Paul was known for his writing in conjunction with Garda sources, and he was, of course, Veronica's competition. And so she decided to outdo him. Rather than rely on what the Gardi told her, she contacted the monk himself and interviewed him at her own kitchen table. The monk was concerned with his reputation. Williams's article had said that he was a pusher, and he was anxious to distance himself from the heroin trade. He pointed out that he himself came from one of the areas that was devastated by heroin addiction. He also used the opportunity to deny his involvement in Veronica's shooting back in January 95. After that shooting, she had been called into a meeting with her editor, Angus Fanning, and a fellow columnist, Eamon Dumphy, where her editor tried to convince Veronica to lay off the gangland stuff. But Veronica's response was that if Fanning didn't let her pursue the story she wanted, she would just go to another paper. She would not be put off. In the next few months, Veronica's work would take on yet another aspect. In late May, she published an article about women who had been threatened by drug dealers. She said in the article that she had passed the information she had gathered on to the Gardee, which is of course the right and proper thing to do. But by publicizing it, she may have put those women at risk. She seemed to want to be involved in fighting the crimes now, not necessarily through the Gardaí in the courts, but by exposing the criminals in the newspapers. She argued that by giving them nicknames and writing about the details of their lives, she was not glamorizing them, but rather she was exposing these drug barons to the public and highlighting how the court and prison systems were inadequate in dealing with their crimes. September 17, 1995, saw another article about Veronica that came as a bombshell and would mark the beginning of a turn of events that would have disastrous results. Liam Collins had a story on the front page of the Sunday Independent that detailed an assault on Veronica a few days earlier. It said in part, quote, A Gardaí investigation is underway into allegations that a County Kildare-based businessman assaulted journalist Veronica Guerin after she approached him while researching a story. The man, John Gilligan, who has a prison record, is alleged to have beaten up Miss Guerin and left her with bruises, a black eye, and torn clothing after the incident last Thursday. End quote. This is the first mention of John Gilligan in relation to Veronica's reporting. At this incident, he reportedly threatened her, saying that he'd kill her, her husband, her son, everyone belonging to her. September 14th, the Thursday before, Veronica had called first to the equestrian centre, looking for Gilligan and answers as to where he got his money from. She had been startled to find out how large the place was, over 70 acres with a huge indoor arena for training and competitions. At the business, she was told that Gilligan wasn't at the centre, but she could try for him over at the private residence. So, Veronica drove over to the security gates and pressed the buzzer. She looked directly into the security camera and waited until the gates swung open. She paused there for a short while, waiting to see if someone would come to meet her, but when there was no sign of anyone, she drove herself up to the mansion that Gilligan had built and gingerly knocked on the front door. Gilligan had been watching her on cameras the whole time as she made her way to the door. He was hung over, having celebrated his son's 20th birthday the night before. When he pulled open the door, he was wearing his dressing gown, 
She asked if he was John Gilligan, and when he said he was, she asked where had the money come to pay for this huge estate. He immediately laid into Veronica, screaming at her and punching her, all the while half carrying her back to her car. He roared at her that he would kill her, her husband, her family, and even her neighbours if she didn't fuck off and leave him alone. He threw her back into the car and she drove off as best as she could. He had beat the shite out of her, and she called a friend at the guards to say as much. She returned that day to her mother's house and sat on the stairs in tears. The next day, the Independent set up a meeting for her with senior counsel Felix McEnroy to discuss the assault. He had worked with Gilligan before and knew him and his temperament. While Veronica was at the meeting, Trainer called her to try and smooth things over, but Gilligan was there with him and he eventually grabbed the phone and started going on about how the property was all in his wife's name, but he eventually lost his cool and then threatened to abduct Veronica's son and rape him. That evening, Veronica got two more calls, one from Geraldine Gilligan to repeat the fact that she and her husband were separated and that she owned all the property. The couple had in fact gone through the process of drawing up a separation agreement, putting everything into Geraldine's name to distance Gilligan from his holdings, but the two were very much living together as a married couple. Later again, Trainer called to try and get Veronica to drop the investigation and story on Gilligan. He reiterated that Gilligan was a dangerous man, not to be messed with, and told Veronica that she would be better off to leave him alone. Nevertheless, she gave a statement to the Guardi at Kulak Garda Station, outlining the threats, which she said she took seriously, and disclosing that she had severe bruising and pain from her injuries, caused by Gilligan's attack. Liam Collins, Veronica's colleague at the paper, rang Gilligan to get a quote from him from the article that appeared on the 17th. Gilligan was happy to oblige and said, quote, If anyone interferes with me or my fucking family, I'll fucking kill you. I'll find out who you are, and I'll kill you, my old flower. On the 14th of May, 1996, Veronica travelled to Kilcock with her husband and a friend for a hearing at the district court for her assault charges against Gilligan. Gilligan arrived in a convoy of expensive vehicles, with an entourage which included his purportedly separated wife, Geraldine. He was acting like a mobster, like he was untouchable, and like he owned the place. Giran was understandably nervous, but would not be swayed to drop the charges against the gangster. There was no way for her to know that the threat of six months or so inside for assault would push Gilligan over the edge. It was a threat to him, to his family, to the empire that he had built up. And he was so much in control of his own destiny that he knew he could easily take care of this mess. If she wouldn't be bought off or scared off, he knew how to fix it, that he would not have to worry about Veronica Guerin anymore. And he'd get to send a message loud and clear to anyone else who dared question him again. At that time, there was no way for Veronica to know that in less than six weeks, she would be dead. Next time on the Men's Rare Podcast. Thanks for listening to Men's Rare, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. You can get in touch on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Men's Rare Pod, M E N S R E A P O D. 
where you'll also find pictures and things of the characters you've heard about today in the current episode. Or why not shoot me an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. I love your feedback and I love hearing from you, so get in touch. A special thank you to our supporters on Patreon. Big thanks this time round to new patrons Molly Smith, Lizzie in the Lab, and Fiona O'Sullivan. Thanks so much, guys. Your support means the world to me. If you want to brighten my day or get some nifty podcast swag or have access to early release, ad free, or bonus mens rea content, head on over to Patreon today. I am exceedingly grateful for every cent. Thanks also to some of our recent five star reviews. Thanks to Henneth! Exclamation mark. Thanks for your kind words and your lovely review. I'm glad that you eventually pressed play in your podcatcher. Happy to be a little surprise in there for you. Thank you to Chelan Gal. Wild and woolly stories, that's great. Thank you so much for your kind words there. Amy Who Digital, my new favourite. Thank you so much for your compliments about the research and delivery. I try really hard to get all of this as good as I can, so so thanks very much for noticing. And finally, thanks to Tilly E. Time for your five stars. You found us through the Murderly mashup. I'm so happy to be part of the Murderly Network and to have such great colleagues on board. And I'm so glad that you found us through that. Thanks for listening. With thanks, as always, to Rona McHugh for help with sound. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources used for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com, and in the show notes. Do check them out. Our theme song is Quinn Song First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. <laughs> <laughs>